Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyber Labs. And today is a little different interview for Flyber Labs. I'm sitting here with Dr. John Dunn, and John is a faculty member for the Center for Investigating Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin. He is also a fellow of the Mind and, and Life Institute and also teaches at the Upaya Zen Center. And he received his PhD from Harvard in 1999. So John focuses on Buddhist philosophy in relation to, in relation to the cognitive sciences and including this to expand to mindfulness. So the reason why I asked John to come on to Flyber Labs is that to learn more about his research and what he's learned over the years. And we often talk about the latest innovations across many industries. And I thought our minds deserved at least one podcast and hopefully many more. So John, thanks for uh, coming on the show today. Happy to be here. Awesome. So all right. So before we get into what your, you know, your um, kind of your practice around meditation, your research, can you tell us a little bit how you got to the center for investigating healthy minds? So uh, actually, we're now called the Center for Healthy oh, Minds. The okay. investigating is gone. I don't. Oh, no, that's that, okay. All right. You may have picked Good. that up from right. some something that's some out older. of there. Yeah. <laughs> We uh, uh, recently, ch- fairly recently changed our name, and we also right. fairly recently moved into a new space where we are right nice. now, actually. <laughs> so I started, uh, let's see, I mean, there's a, there's a whole backstory, we could go way back, uh, or, but I can tell you more immediately that I actually taught at the University of Wisconsin-Madison uh, starting in 1999, and then in 2005, I was recruited away by Emory University. And then in 2015, I had the very unusual circumstance of first getting being convinced to uh, go through the interview process for a job at the University of Virginia to join their Contemplative Science Center in the Department of Religion. And then my friend Richie Davidson, the founder of the Center for Healthy Minds, yeah. uh, heard about that. And in a very short period of time, he created an endowed chair for me. So I couldn't say no. Wow. <laughs> so that's wow. how I ended up here. And, and, and how, that's a very short story. There's yes. much more to say. <laughs> and what what uh, when you came to UW initially in 1999, like before you got to Center for Healthy Minds, what what uh, was what were you teaching? What was your research? So I, I was uh, uh, one of the things that I became very interested in is I you know, first uh, first of all I encountered Buddhism way back in 1981 and started engaging in meditation practice back then. And as my practice kind of advanced, I also saw that the philosophy was a very important element of it. And in mm-hmm. fact, that's a big part of what kind of helped me through a, certain, a, a kind of difficult period, actually, when I was uh, transitioned to, from the United, United States Air Force Academy, where I first went to school really? for two years. Yes, I was yeah. a Zoomie, as they call us. <laughs> and uh, then I went to Amherst College, and maybe we can talk more about that later. But uh, that's kind of, that period is when I first got into Buddhism. And uh, I found that the philosophy was very helpful, so I wanted to study it. But studying philosophy it really required that I also learn, learn the languages. Mm-hmm. Because especially at that time, the translations weren't that great. And it's still the case that there are a lot of really important texts that haven't been translated. So first I learned Tibetan, then I discovered that I, a lot of the texts they were talking about were from Sanskrit. So then I learned the Sanskrit language, wow. the ancient language of India. Uh, and uh, then I started to think, well, what, what's uh, now I can read the text, what do I really want to know? And the thing that I really found was most useful for me and was a key to a lot of the Buddhist philosophy was how do we know anything at all? 
What are the standards of our knowledge or epistemology? So that question really became a kind of burning question for me. And I began to work on all of the Buddhist philosophers who addressed that question. And there are quite a few of them. But I eventually uh, focused in on one particular philosopher who uh, wrote in Sanskrit in the 7th century in India. And his name is Dharmakirti which means as famous as Dharma, actually. Okay. And uh, uh, so Dharmakirti's work is, uh, was, I had no idea, I was just this sort of fresh-faced PhD student, is <laughs> notoriously difficult. I had no clue that that was the case. So I just went ahead and did it anyway. And uh, I ended up focusing quite a lot on questions around the nature of perception, hmm. the nature of inferential reasoning, and uh, our use of language, how language operates, how concepts operate, concept formation, and then uh, the foundational question of why, what do we mean when we say that these are reliable sources of knowledge? Uh, so that kind of work actually involves, for example, an analysis of exactly how perception operates, what's attention, what does it mean to be distracted, mm -hmm. and those are the kind of same kinds of questions that people that do, for example, cognitive psychology work on. It also involves a lot of work on issues around what we call emotions. So I, when I came to, the, to campus here after a stint at the University of Lausanne, uh, when I was finishing my PhD, when I came to campus and started my first job here, I, 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 an undergraduate by the name of Erin Eamon, who's from here in Wisconsin, she uh, dragged me into Richie Davidson's office, practically dragged me. I said, I don't have time for this. And she, she said, no, you should meet this guy. And I want to work on Tibetans and meditation and so on and so forth. So uh, she dragged me into his office and uh, we kind of hit it off, but also discovered that he needed some help with one of the first projects that really kind of launched the center. Okay. What year is this? About? This is in 99-2000. Uh, okay. All right, so way back. Okay. Way back. And... Uh, that project was on a study of very long-term Tibetan meditators okay. yep. who were really experts, amazing experts. And there's a study that Mathieu Ricard, the uh, French, who's a Tibetan monk now, but also got his PhD in um, uh, microbiology, I think it is. Uh, Mathieu helped to set up that study, make connections with the Dalai Lama so we could find these really advanced meditators uh, you know, who have meditated between at least 10,000 and often 25, 30,000 hours in and, their lifetime. And that was one question I always had is like, how do you know they're advanced? I mean, just based on the number of hours, just based on, because, yeah. Well, they get a little card, you see. No yeah, exactly, that's what I was wondering. They're in this group and club. <laughs> they, uh, part of the way you know they're, and this is a really interesting question in the meditation world is, it's, you know, what, there's this kind of uh, notion that expertise uh, there's uh, a literature around how we acquire expertise and one basic theory is well if you've done something for 10,000 hours you're an expert yeah. Yeah. it's really kind of not true yeah. uh, we all know <laughs> okay. it's not true right. you could do something for 10,000 hours and actually not be an expert but more importantly you could do it for a lot less time and become an expert mm. so the acquisition of expertise is not it's not really clear that it's tied to a particular kind of time frame but 10,000 hours is pretty good and we could estimate the amount of time that these practitioners had done uh, a meditation practice because many of them had done three-year retreats mm -hmm. where they, have, they live in isolation for three years continuously and engage in various meditative or contemplative wow. practices during that time. One of our uh, subjects actually had done that already three times, I believe. And uh, oh. he's a subject by the name of Mingyur Rinpoche, who's... We, 
since he's sort of come out and mentioned that he was a part of the study, it's okay to, to identify him. So, uh, yeah, so this was that first early study. Okay. It was a really groundbreaking study. Yeah. And, uh, and we, Richie and I started, first I was just translating for them, for them from Tibetan, because most of them were Tibetan okay. speakers, so I was doing oral translation. But then we started to talk about the theory behind the practices and how can we design the experiments to really pick up what the practices are meant to do. And then at that time, I was working not only with Richie, but especially with uh, another scientist named Antoine Lutz, okay. who's still associated with the center, but now he has his own lab in Lyon, in France. And, uh, you know, the upshot is that the kind of work I was doing before on epistemology, the nature of perception, how emotions affect our beliefs, and so on and so forth, that all just really dovetailed very nicely yeah. with the kinds of questions that come up in that empirical context. So given a, a little bit of a scientific background before that, it was pretty easy for me to kind of immediately begin collaborating in, a, in an intensive way with the scientists, but also with the practitioners. So Mingyur Rimche, whom I mentioned, I mentioned for example, uh, who comes through still periodically here in Madison, he uh, uh, was actually an important collaborator in designing the experiments. How so? Right. Well, he would, you know, we would ask questions, for example, about a very simple question sometimes around how a practice operates. So one question would be, if I am engaged in a certain style of practice, which we generically call focused attention, where I'm trying to maintain my focus on an object in a one-pointed fashion without any distraction, would that mean that uh, I would be less susceptible or more susceptible to a startle response, where we make a loud sound, mm -hmm. And you get and you react, right? Yeah, so this yeah. is a kind of uh, uh, a reaction that uh, is the only t apparently the only time I've heard of someone not having that reaction when you get a really high decibel sound into your ears through a set of earphones. It's like the sound of a gun going yeah, off. Wow. Even people who shoot guns a lot, yeah. they still have the startle response, a little bit of startle response, where the, which has very distinctive uh, movements in the face, for example, in the muscles of the face. Um, uh, the only time I've heard of someone not experiencing that is actually Mathieu Ricard, who I mentioned before. Uh, Paul Ekman once had him do something um, using a certain style of meditation, a focused attention, one point of meditation. And according to Paul Ekman, although I've never seen the data, but according to him, uh, he, uh, Mathieu did not have a startle response. Needless wow. to say, Paul was pretty amazed. <laughs> but we didn't see that in our practitioners. But with the question would be sort of, is this kind of intense focused state one that would be actually intensify the response to peripheral uh, uh, sound or would it actually dampen that response? And that required a practitioner who both understood the practice and had a lot of experience in it, but also understood something about the theory behind the practice. So Mingyur Ribache was a good example of, of a practitioner who could really kind of be a collaborator in designing the experiments. Interesting. Did, and I want to get into uh, your research right now, but I, I'm curious uh, from a personal standpoint too, is like, did you ever find anything how you can improve or speed up the your meditation, the quality of your meditation, or become, you know, um, more meditative faster. You know, because some people might take ten thousand hours, but some might take a lot less time. Has there ever been research? Uh, you know, I don't think we've gotten. There's so much that we haven't done yet. Yeah, That's yeah. not really a question that yeah. we've addressed. Uh, I think there there are a couple of things. One of them is that the you know there are people who think that biofeedback or other kinds of mm. other uses of technology might help. I haven't seen any any evidence that that's the case. Okay. 
and I'm not saying it's not the case. I just don't, I haven't seen any evidence one way or the other. Uh, but I, I think that there are some more obvious and maybe uh, more reliable ways of improving the likelihood that our practice is going to have an effect. And one of them is actually just to do it. <laughs> Fair enough. Yes, yeah, like anything. <laughs> you've got you've to do it, but importantly, you've got to do it every day. Hmm. So it is clearly the kind of thing that if you don't do it every day, it really erodes quite quickly. Hmm. And we can induce mindfulness-type effects, for example, with a very short induction, like in just 10 minutes, but it, that goes away equally quickly. Uh, so one of the things is you got to do it every day. The other thing that really seems to have a big impact, and we're starting to see this in some of the research that my, this, my scientific colleagues have been telling me about here, is that it seems like uh, retreat experience, meaning where you do some kind of intensive practice, usually multiple days, uh, you know, for six, seven, eight, nine hours a day, that that kind of intensive retreat experience has more of an impact even than daily practice. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So, you know, going off and doing a three-day weekend retreat or even a 10-day uh, retreat, which is one style that you, you'll see in the inside meditation tradition, for example, that long those kinds of retreat experiences seem to be very valuable for really ingraining the practice and that, I think, probably does accelerate. You know, I, would, I definitely would pose the hypothesis that that yeah. would accelerate one's, uh, you know, achievement of expertise eventually. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, um, yes, I mean, we could talk about your background, I think, forever. I, but uh, I think, uh, let, let's jump to your, what you're working on now and some of the projects or what you're interested in right now. Let's see. What am I working on? I'm working on a number of different things. Uh, one of the things that uh, I've been, well, let's see, what should I start with? Let's see. Uh, there's so many things. And actually, you know, I just want to put a plug in for, for my colleague Richie Davidson's new book with, that he wrote oh, with yeah. Dan Goldman. I just bought that, yes. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 Altered Traits. Yep. So, and I'm actually, you can, if you want to read more about those, that time that I was working with Mingyur Rinpoche, it's actually in one of the chapters, as it turns out. I had awesome. no, right. no idea until Richie showed me. But... Uh, so no that that's a book that can give you a good sense of the kind of work yeah. we we do here yeah. uh, more broadly. So let me focus in on some of the things that I'm particularly doing. I'm involved yeah. in some broad broader work here, which are uh, around, for example, the development of our Healthy Minds program. Okay. That's going to be an app-based uh, program uh, that uh, is actually going to very innovatively involve not just a teaching of meditation, but also the science around it. And then various ways of sort of assessing how things are going, all done through an app. So that is, uh, we've got some corporate partners and um, that's going to be rolling out sometime in the next uh, year or two. Can you share anything about, I'm really curious, what, how do you know, how do you assess how things are going? Like, what, well, can you give you know, one example? Or, yeah, or, one way to assess yeah. how things are going is just uh, uh, how, uh, whether or not, uh, one is practicing, is one actually doing mm -hmm. the practice, so you can track that kind of thing. But another way of assessing how you're doing is, let's say we can, we can give you attention tasks that you can perform on the phone, at least that's what we think. I mean, mm -hmm. Right now, I'm told the designers are working on that. It's a little challenging, but these are actually be real-time reaction time tasks on the phone little bit like playing a game yeah. and you can see whether you have any differences in your reaction time as you as a result of your practice we'll also have tasks that sort of assess your emotional reactivity and whether there are changes there 
And the idea here is not to sort of grade people, but just to enable them to see how things are changing as they go through the program. So those would be some of them. What would be the emotional response? I mean, that's kind of well, I'm not sure yeah. what they intend. There yeah. are some, some of them are like, there's a task called an emotional stroop, okay. where you're given emotion words, and, but they're also then uh, put, placed in uh, different colors. And sometimes you're asked to report on the color of the word, and sometimes you're asked to read what the word is. And if it's an emotion word, you're gonna focus much more on the word than on the color. Huh. So if I say yeah. sadness and I say now, you know, sadness comes up, but you know that in this particular trial, you're supposed to identify the color of the, of the letters. It's blue, but you'll hesitate more because you're sort of locked into the word sadness. Huh. You see what I mean? Oh, yeah. 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 So those are the kinds of tasks I, that, that I, I believe we're going to try to do something like that for the app. I'm, our scientists now uh, are just working on, the, okay, on, right. on these kinds of uh, developing these, which which exact kinds of assessments are going to be in the app? Okay. Uh, and would meditation, what what would meditation help you with? Uh, with the kind of emotional response with the well, colors? one of the ways of I mean, there are many different styles of yeah. meditation. Yeah. But one of the things I'm really interested in is in meta awareness. Okay. Two things that I'm really interested in these day these days, and these come out of an article that I wrote with some colleagues, including Antoine Lutz that I mentioned earlier, that came out in uh, I think it's the most widely distributed professional publication in psychology. It's called the American Psychologist. Okay which is a sort of flagship journal of the American Psychological Association. And uh, I always forget the title of this article because it's pretty complicated. <laughs> it's uh, if you say a that, phenomenological, <laughs> yeah, exactly. A phenomenal, not, phenomenological matrix for the neurocognitive investigation of mindfulness-based practices. Oh, like, that makes sense. I mean, that's <laughs> what I thought it was going to be. So, yes. <laughs> so uh, which was actually a lot of fun to write. It took us a long time. But we talk about some features of mindfulness, and one point we make, though, is that there isn't any single, just as there isn't any single style of meditation, that's the problem with the word meditation, and we use it in the mm. singular. That's why we often prefer the term contemplative practices, because there are such, such a huge variety of contemplative practices, even within single traditions like Christianity or Buddhism. But uh, even mindfulness itself is, in fact, not a single thing. There are many different styles of mindfulness. And we develop a model that sort of points to some of the key features experientially, what we call the phenomenology of mindfulness, the experience of mindfulness, and then try to tie that to possible brain mechanisms or functions. And uh, some of the features that we identify, in, we talk about seven different dimensions, but the two that I think are most interesting to me right now that I'm concretely working on are meta-awareness and de-reification. So, yeah, yes, I know, fancy, fancy yes. terms. So this is all about, this is about your question, like why would this help with your emotions? Yeah, so yeah. let's take de-reification as a, as a good one. Okay. Um, if I, uh, uh, and, and this is really relevant to how we experience stress, right? It's uh, on a philosophical way, it's also very relevant to how we get locked into a particular interpretation of our world, which could be a false interpretation. Mm. So, um, you know, if I ask you to imagine, my usual example that I like to use is a bowl of strawberries. So okay. maybe your listeners can be imagining a beautiful bowl of strawberries, you know? <laughs> Freshly washed, glistening in the sun, organic, 
fresh from Whole Foods. <laughs> There's a plug for a sponsor. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, it's beautiful. It's just got that smell wafting forward. Maybe there's some uh, melted chocolate nearby for dipping. And if we've imagined that enough, what can happen? Start watering. Your mouth starts watering. Yeah, yeah. like my, my <laughs> mouth yeah, is exactly. actually yeah, watering yeah. right now, right? So isn't that amazing? Yeah. Like we can think yeah. just by thinking, mm -hmm. we can have an impact on our bodies. Right. So this is actually a really useful thing in some ways for humans. But humans have this seem to have this much more than any other uh, creatures in the world. And that's yeah. this capacity to essentially run a kind of simulation. So certain at least some kinds of thought operate like little simulations, like the movie, The Matrix. You yeah. know, you're yeah. sort of you're in the matrix when you're thinking. And we can see that sometimes when maybe when we're daydreaming, you know, we almost feel like we're on the beach yeah. in the Bahamas. And uh, when we're but also and I should say this is useful for humans because what we can do is we can sort of relive past events and learn from them and we can also plan prospectively and, and sort of run an embodied simulation of how we're going to work something out, what, what are we going to do. And those, so that capacity with this kind of huge human cortex that we have in the brain it really is wonderful, but it's also got a, a downside. It's kind of a double-edged sword, which is that the very same capacity to simulate, which is a embodied simulation, can then also be a source of stress. So yes. I can relive traumatic events. I can also be concerned about, you know, I'm going to have a meeting tomorrow, and I can start thinking about it. I know it's going to be a difficult meeting, and I start to imagine what I'm going to do and what I'm going to plan. And I imagine, you know, things going badly and suddenly I'm in the middle of a stress response, even though I'm just sitting in my living room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so chronic stress is where you just do that again and again and again and again. And one of the results of that that we think is important is that you essentially are just flooding your system constantly with uh, inflammatory uh, hormones that are causing what uh, that are causing an inflammatory response. And the uh, the and that inflammatory response is kind of like we're aware on the system. Yeah, yeah. So uh, reification as a term. So to reify something is to make it real. Yeah. So to reify is to make it not real. So it's simply like we reimagine again those beautiful bowl of strawberries, uh, glistening in the sun, all ready to go, smells great, and then we say, now take that image in the mind and say, that's just a thought. It's not a strawberry. Yeah. It's a thought. Right? So the idea is not to... The interesting thing when you do that, by the way, I think if you experiment with this, uh, or the next time you're caught in one of your little simulations, just try to say, that's just a thought. Right? Uh, you can't eat that strawberry. And when you do that, I think for most people what you find is it just goes poof. Yeah. It, it just dissipates. The reason it dissipates is the mind, the cognitive system, pays attention to stuff that's relevant for its goals, right? For our goals. Like, so if you see, you know, if you hear, hear a loud sound, one of your basic kind of tasks is just the task of life to survive. So a loud sound is always relevant because it could be a danger. If I'm looking for something to eat, I will notice strawberries and I may not even see like the pencil on the desk. I'm looking for food. Yeah, right? Yeah. So I notice the things that are really relevant to me. Uh, once something's irrelevant, you stop paying it, the mind, the cognitive system stops paying attention to it. The image of a strawberry, when you think it's a strawberry, is relevant because it's food.
When it's a thought, it's like, uh -huh. oh, come on, really? got plenty of those, <laughs> don't need another thought. So uh, it goes away. So that's the reification. It's like uncouples yep. one from the intensity of the experience and therefore enables one. doesn't mean you have to stop thinking altogether. That's not the point. It's a different relationship to thought. And, and that's what meditation can really help with is identifying your thoughts versus <laughs> and, and when they come up and uh, dealing with them at that moment. And so are you interested in de-reification, especially from the, the health standpoint of all being more relaxed, you know, as more and more research comes out showing that all these inflammatory markers are just horrible or the inflammation yes. is horrible for us. Yeah. Is that where you're especially interested in is how can we all become more relaxed or what? Uh, That's, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's definitely part of it. Yeah. And I also found it, you know, personally that that learning that was very, really was yeah. created a big shift for me. And uh, not to say that I was an expert at it, or you know, I still have my moments for yeah. sure. <laughs> yes, but and, uh, and can you explain one of those moments and what you do in one of those moments when they come up? Like you talked about the meeting they were stressed about, or yeah, what, what do you do personally when? How well, do you deal with that? What, yeah, I, I will, but we okay. have to explain meta awareness right, before I do that okay, because right. you you can't you won't understand what all to right. do without that. Right. So. Uh, <laughs> uh, the uh, but I uh, so we'll come we'll circle back to that right. if that's okay with you. No, but, that's fine. Uh, um, the you asked me what did you ask me about about verification? Oh, kind of like especially what you're interested in from the health standpoint. Like, oh yes, right. Yeah. So yeah, obviously my I and my colleagues here that's a big part yeah. of it. The Healthy Minds program. It's about well-being. In fact, the you know the mission of the center is uh, which I wish I had memorized <laughs> is essentially to enhance well-being you know to sort of reduce suffering and enhance well-being through a scientific understanding of the mind I think I got it pretty close yeah, actually sounds good to me yeah, yeah. so uh, and uh, so obviously issues around stress and the inflammatory response that can come with stress those are clearly really big issues right now for us anxiety is another really big issue mm -hmm that uh, is, can be crippling for people and dereification is something that can be helpful in the context of, of anxiety. Uh, the, so certainly the health issues are, are and really enhancing wellness, relieving suffering and, and especially enhancing wellness, that's, that's a big part of what, okay. what yeah. we're interested yeah. in, well-being. But also uh, sort of philosophically, one of the things that is powerful about the idea of dereification is kind of the realization that every model we have is only a model. Mm -hmm. There's no such thing as the perfect account of reality. So that's now we're getting into Buddhist, yeah, that, right? The Buddhist that stuff. That goes back to some of your earlier interests too, and perception yes. and everything, and what's yes. real. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. is very interesting, right? Yeah, I, I, right. Everyone, when they, when, I would probably shouldn't use this word, but if you say God, that means I'm the, Many, many different things to everyone. Of course. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But even if you say, you know, table. Yeah. Or carbon yeah. atom. Or blue. Or, yes. Yeah, or blue. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, our models, the point is to, to recognize that models are mental events mm -hmm. and models don't conform to reality. That is a very important philosophical position. There are some who don't re accept that, you know, the, mm -hmm. what we call the objectivist position. As a from a, a epistemological standpoint, uh, when we say someone is an objectivist, it means that they think that their model conforms precisely to the nature of reality. Hmm. 
And, Which may, well, yeah, sounds dangerous or can be dangerous, maybe. But well, it, yeah, there are many reasons why that would be a pretty much miraculous event because it would mean that the structures <laughs> yes. of human cognition it's just happen to align perfectly with the structures of the universe, which is uh, like you know, talk about God. That would probably require a God yes. to make to arrange that. <laughs> it also is pretty egotistical on the part of humans to think that the structure of their cognition is somehow exactly the same as the structure yes. of the universe. <laughs> But you know, humans are famously egotistical, so. Good point, good point. Um, yes, all right, so meta, meta-awareness, do you wanna? So, so meta-awareness, yeah. Then we can yeah. finally get into it, then we yeah. can get into your then personal. Was, yeah, <laughs> so, so then meta-awareness is another really key element that's trained by most styles of mindfulness. And uh, the, uh, some train it more and some train it less. It, it's, uh, one of the ways of thinking about what's happening in meta-awareness is, let me give you a, a sort of scenario, okay? another embodied uh, cognition to yeah. have here. So suppose like we go camping, we're on the, I like to talk about, I use a particular picture when I do this, okay. that my wife took some years ago on the plateau of Tibet. And you know, we've gone camping in this spot and it's early morning, we get up, the sun is just starting to rise, we walk over you know, a few meters to a place where we can see the sunrise and this spectacular, beautiful sunrise, you know, unbelievable colors, kind of indescribable. We're both totally absorbed in it. And then uh, we turn around after a few minutes and, you know, head back to the tents to make breakfast. And I turn to you and I ask, how did you feel when you were looking at the sunrise? Now, do you need to go back to the sunrise and say, well, I, you say to first, you say to me, well, I don't know because I was staring at the sunrise and I wasn't paying attention to my feelings. So let me go back and look at the sunrise. And then while I'm looking at it, I'll quickly turn inward and check my feelings so I can tell you how I feel. Or without doing all that, you already know how you felt. Even though you weren't explicitly paying any attention to your feelings, you already know how you felt uh, while you were looking at the sunrise. Never thought about that. I like that. That's cool. All right. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that information was being presented even while you were focused on an object. Yep. So there's this information that's about the kind of background of experience that's included in the experience. Mm. Right. So that's this concept of how is that being presented? That's the concept of meta-awareness. And you're not really, in that circumstance, you're not really using your analytical mind necessarily, right? No, you're right. Just, you're just aware, right? You're, you're right. Just, your, your awareness is aware. Exactly. Right yeah. So, and there are a couple of interesting things about this. One of them is, and, and this is a little bit, I'm just going to throw in a, a technical term called reflexivity. Mm-hmm. And there's a, I'm going to try to treat, I'm going to treat meta-awareness as kind of the same as reflexivity. And I'm not going to say any more about that because I don't want to, get too technical, but for some of your listeners who might know something about these issues, uh, they'll maybe appreciate that comment. So here's a very interesting thing about meta-awareness as well, or what we could even call reflexivity. As I am staring at the sunset, those emotions are being presented, right? But if I ask you, like I've got my iPhone here and I ask you to stare at the iPhone for a second, as you look at the iPhone, as we both look at the iPhone, I can then say, okay, here's a timestamp, boom. And then I ask you, at that timestamp, were you looking at the iPhone or was it somebody else looking at it? <laughs> did, you have, did, you, <laughs> did you have a feeling of it? In other words, the sense that there is a kind of iPhone out there and a sense of a subject 
someone seeing in here. Right, right. But you weren't paying any attention to the subjectivity. No. But you all know, like it's almost a ridiculous question, right? right? It, yes. Yeah. Is it outside? Or are you saying is it an object versus subject? Or, 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 what I'm saying is that, that your sense of subjectivity is included in the experience. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. If you're if you're not uh, taking a step back and right, you're immersed. Right. In even if, right? even if you're immersed, the yeah. sense of subjectivity is still included in the yep. experience. Yep. Lots of other things are included, like your body position. Hmm. Like if I said when you were sitting down when you were looking at the iPhone, it's not like you have to guess like, oh, well, I didn't get up, so I must have been sitting down. It's like the sense of your body position wow. is also included. And that's what meta-awareness is picking up. It's picking up all of this background stuff. But so like I said, if there's a loud sound, we notice it because it's relevant to our basic task of staying alive. Sometimes, so you can think that there are all these sensory channels, if you like. Right? There's, you know, there's vision and auditory and so on. And meta-awareness is one of those channels. Okay? There's no like little guy in there kind of surveying all the channels, but they come into the system and when they become relevant, they pop up and we call that salience. Like we pay attention. We notice the big sound or I'm looking for food or I notice the strawberries. So let's say I'm in the middle of a conversation and I start to notice that I'm getting irritated or something. Yep. How do I notice that? I'm focused on the argument. Right. Something else working. Right. So that, that just <laughs> like later, yeah. just like the loud sound, you know, really imposes on yeah. me. But I'm kind of the, all of those systems are giving me information that at a certain point the system sort of something becomes salient, it becomes relevant. And that background information about my emotional states is finally gets strong enough, hopefully, that I pay attention to it. Yeah. And then I then I can do something. When I paid attention, I can regulate. I can I can do something. If I know, of course, as we know, and I've certainly been in this situation, and probably we've seen people in this situation, maybe especially in the business world. Sometimes sometimes that channel seems to be totally off mm. or turned way down, so that people can get way into a really contentious argument and not even realize that they're kind of pissing people off as they're having this conversation so how do we so what does that mean so what am, so to get back to your question yeah. one of the things that is really important to be is to have this kind of to let this this to cultivate turn up the volume on that channel a little mm -hmm. bit and how do you do that if you if we yeah. value that yeah. Yeah. yeah right if we think that's important yeah. our relationship with our customers with our you know collaborators whatever it might be with other people our family being able to kind of uh, be aware of that channel to let it have a little more strength is important. And how do we do that? Well, yeah. mindfulness meditation is a good way to do that. <laughs> it's one of the main ways you do that. And, but you can think of it as also, in a sense, learning how to step back mm -hmm. from experience and, but, and not like turn inward, but just to sort of, uh, in a way, um, uh, let's just release a little bit of effort. Because part of the, mm. hypothetically, part of what's, what is the way this seems to work is that we have a certain amount of kind of cognitive mojo to spend. And we can spend it all on objects. And if we do that, then we don't have a lot of that, those resources left for this background awareness, the meta-awareness, the background aspect of awareness. So that really turns it down. So if we get really strongly focused in something, 
Okay? And we need to do that sometimes. But if, we're, if, we ha- if our habit is always to kind of razor sharp fixate on things, then probably that channel is going to be kind of atrophied. Mm-hmm. So learning how to be a little bit less effortful, to kind of step back. You can think of this as being relaxed. It doesn't necessarily mean relaxed. We can be very intense and still in, in a less kind of totally focused way. Uh, a less, what shall we say, fixated way. Uh, drop a little of that fixation and that opens up that channel just on its own, actually. So that's in, you know, so mindfulness meditation can be very good for this. And I can, if you want, I can talk more about the details of how that works. But even that just simple technique of just a little less effort, a little less yeah. fixation itself kind of automatically is going to increase that channel, which means in social situations and meetings, Probably even creativity, you know, instead of... Exactly. Going, you can, it seems you, to be related to creativity. Yeah, you can, you can take a walk whenever you're, even in a meeting. You know, you're, you're always supposed to, you know, take a walk to, like, relax your mind and stuff, and, but interesting. Um, yes, I mean, I would, well, yeah, I would, I would have so many questions for you, but I would, uh, I'd be a, a little curious kind of how you go about doing that, like, taking that step back. So people, you know, like talk about mindfulness or, like, let's say you're worried about tomorrow's meeting. What would you do? Or what do you recommend? How do you kind of deal with that kind of negative energy? Or Yeah, well, so one of the things I would do, so one of the things that's important is, and maybe we could talk about this in terms of, of practice itself, like a mindfulness style of practice itself. But yeah. One of the most important things is to not be averse to your own experience. So if, when we're averse, I mean, there are basically two kind of ways of reacting in, in a state of aversion. One of them is to just run away, so that's avoidance. And another is, you know, to try to like just break or destroy or eliminate the thing. So a lot of the time we can't, you know, if it's our own experience, we can't get rid of our own experience. So what we do is we suppress it or we ignore it or we just somehow avoid it, right? Avoid our feelings of what we're experiencing. So that is a, that's a no, that's a non-starter for dealing with, let's say, the anxiety I might have about a meeting. So the first thing is to be able to be with one's experience in a non-judgmental way, which is to say, to just not assess it as good or bad, or even not to say it's one thing or another, but simply to ask, what is this, right? And so to approach it with a kind of curiosity and an openness that is inquiring, Mm. what is this? No need to even label it beyond simply saying it's this. It can be very interesting in the case of pain, for example, physical pain. So as many long-term meditators know, sometimes long-term meditation, if you're doing certain kinds of sitting meditation for long periods of time, you can develop some pretty intense pain. But that pain itself can become an object of one's experience. You can can direct your awareness to it. And usually we're averse to pain, but if one can let go of that aversion, we're averse to it because we identify it as bad, something to get rid of, right? So instead of identifying it as something bad, something to get rid of, one simply asks, what is this? And that actually can almost immediately change the quality of the pain, change the experience of the pain. One researcher at the University of Utah, Eric Garland, has been working with patients who have had, had opioid issues because of their severe pain, and he's found that some of this kind of work actually can transform the pain into something that is in fact pleasurable. Now, I, 
Really? Yeah, I don't think really? he's published on that yet. Wow. But that's pretty amazing. Well, it's I'm not suggesting yeah. that that's where we should go, <laughs> right. but uh, it's still, that's pretty amazing. Well, so it's, it's taking the negative or like negative energy that we perceive it as is making more like a life lesson or something positive, like, oh, I'm going to use this for like something to, yes. to grow, to become more. But you don't spiritual. even need that much, right? It's yeah, just, yeah. what is this? Yeah. Simply letting, not trying to do anything with it, not yeah. trying to make it into something, just noticing it yeah. as it is and not categorizing it, that itself can be a very profound moment when we look at, for example, what's going on with our, with our stress or anxiety about something that's going to happen tomorrow, that we think is going to happen tomorrow. Now, in that, one of the things that's important there for matter, but matter, the role that matter awareness plays actually is that as I, let's say I'm kind of running my little simulation, I'm, I'm in this, you know, I'm thinking about a meeting if I don't notice that I'm anxious, that stuff is happening in my body, for example, then, uh, you know, obviously there's no opportunity to regulate. Mm. So the first step there is I have to notice that I'm anxious. How do I notice? I notice through meta-awareness. So I could be totally immersed in my thoughts about, you know, this terrible meeting and if I don't, you know, so if that immersion is too complete, I may not, I may be sort of blocking or just atrophying that, that meta-awareness channel. So I need to be able to step back from the, uh, uh, from that simulation to somewhat. And that's where the, the de-reification comes in. Mm-hmm. So just, so in that still, you have to notice that you're fixated. So you've got to have a little bit of meta-awareness, just enough to notice what's the state of my mind. Like, how are things going? It's not introspecting and totally turning inward. It's not about inwardness. It's about having a kind of almost like, uh, as one researcher that I've worked with, Amishi Jha, has worked with the football team at the University of Miami. And they said, oh, mindfulness, yeah, this kind of stuff, mental awareness. You're talking about, you know, field awareness, where you're sort of aware of the whole field, (laughs) even while you're, you know, in the middle of the play, right? So it's that kind of open... Awareness that's not just locked into catching the ball, but it's also where where the guy is, you know, where's where's the cornerback? How am I going to get around him? Even while I'm focused on the ball. So it's a broader kind of more open awareness that and if we have that cultivated, then we can at least notice that we're fixated. Then we can de-reify, right? We can just see this is just a thought. This isn't reality. And then we can, once that's once that's in place, then there's a little bit of spaciousness for us to, for example, let go of the effort to even do some breathing exercises to find some calm and then re-engage, right? Because what's important here is we're not trying to avoid, we're trying to re-engage, right? We're trying to see more clearly, what, why am I anxious? What's the story that I'm telling myself, right? So it's not a matter of just making it all go away. It's a matter of really seeing, hey, what's important here? But not getting doing that in a clear-headed way, not this kind of fixated way that only gets stuck in one story, or that experiences the story differently. Yeah. I, I, oh, oh, sorry. Can no, you, go I, ahead. I was, I was just gonna. Say, I was cause, so. How do you? Be, is meditation the main way to get more meta awareness? Because of course, and opening up that channel. Because you know, if you meditate, you're like, oh, it'd be nice to be kind of in this state like the entire day, but. You know, five minutes after you're done meditating, you know, you're, you're back to that narrow focus. Are there any other uh, 
tools or anything else that you guys have found that uh, kind of opens up that channel more besides just lots of meditating? Uh, uh, and we, I think the answer is we don't know what yeah, else yeah. might help, but yeah. here's some hypotheses okay, actually. I like that. <laughs> uh, so one of them would be that, so first of all, meditation doesn't mean always on the cushion. Mm -hmm. So there's a way of being, going through the day and walking in which rather than just kind of walking mindlessly on autopilot, I notice how I'm walking. So let's talk about maybe more specifically how meditation on the cushion kind of cultivates this. The way it works is that some, you know, there are styles of meditation, like mindfulness meditation, some styles of mindfulness meditation that are really about object focus. And most styles of mindfulness, at least initially, take some kind of an object. So the sensations of breathing, like at the abdomen or sometimes at the nostrils, wherever it's most prominent, are often taken as an initial object. Right? So we, we speak about mindfulness of breathing. So as one has that object, there are kind of two ways you can take it. One of them is, I'm really trying to focus on that object. I want to gain a sort of very stable, high fidelity, high res focus on this object. Or the mind is like, you can think of the mind as being like a, you know, a dog that wants a toy. If you give the dog a toy, then it's happy, it's got the toy, and it just sticks with it, right? Yeah. The mind wants objects. Yeah. So if you, so you can give it an object, which would be the breath, right? The sensations of breathing. But you're not there trying to figure out the breath. It's not about focusing hard on the breath. It's just about allowing the mind to have an object, to rest on the breath, the sensations of breathing, and then you've got all this extra mojo, so to speak, to do to be aware of the background. But the trick is, if you look at the background, you've lost the breath. So it's not looking at, it's not, you know, turning inward in some kind of introspection thing. It's while your mind is still on the breath, you sort of become aware of your background as if out of the corner of your eye. Okay, so that's a style of mindfulness that is much more about cultivating meta-awareness. This more broad awareness of the background. But interestingly, what that means is, if I'm focused on an object, then I'm in what we call technically a dualistic state. So there's a subject focusing on an object, right? So if while I'm focusing on the object, I'm aware of the background without losing my focus on the object, what does that mean? My awareness is, is, it, is my awareness of the background dualistic? It's actually non-dual, huh. right? I'm doing it in a way, I'm, so this is why in certain traditions we, we say that, uh, you know, non-dual awareness is a, is a constant feature of awareness in general. Hmm. It's kind of required for awareness because it, it's right. what provides us the sense of subjectivity. Yep. It also what keeps us located in space and time, you know? So it's kind of tracking all that stuff while we're focusing on objects. So that is, so what, that's what we're working on. We're just sort of less, just give, give the mind a really easy object, you know, not, no need to focus hard on it and then just see what's happening in the background. What's the quality of the awareness? But again, it's tricky because you have to do it without losing the breath. Yeah. The breath. Yeah. So that's a little bit of a sense of, you know, a starter place. Yeah, no, it's good, I like that. Yeah. And, uh, and you, know, you can do that. So this also means that things that kind of occupy or take the mind yeah. with, um, uh, but, also, we leave a lot of resources for the background awareness. Things that are like that, 
may also be good for cultivating aware meta awareness. And I think that some sports may be good for that. Really? Yeah, I'm a cycler, pretty serious cyclist. Okay. And cycling seems to be a little bit like that. Huh. You Interesting. Know? Yeah. So one of the reasons that uh, walking meditation is also important in mindfulness traditions is that the dynamics of movement, we kind of have the mind kind of can just watch, be involved in the movement, and which already is it's sort of a way of, you, it's hard to fixate on movement itself. Yeah, right, right. Where, what point do you focus on, right? For, right. Um, and it's good practice for me for the rest of the day. Or <laughs> yeah, exactly. So then, the, then there can be a kind of background. That may mean that the, this background awareness that's tracking how the body is. Yep. You can think of this as like we're checking in without doing so explicitly. Yep, yep. Interesting. All right. Well, we're actually already over time. So, but this is this isn't great. I, I did have, if there's anything you want to mention, you can. But um, one question I had is that you've probably met a lot of people who have meditated for many years, and when you have two and many hours, like when you when they when they when somebody walks into the room, or can you ever get a sense that somebody's very good at meditating? Yes. Yeah. You yeah, can. Yeah. Really. Yeah. I think How so. so? Yeah. I think so. <laughs> okay. So I know. Well, they kind of—they don't walk. They walk above the ground. They float. Yeah, a yeah sorry, they float, and they're like light shooting from their hands. And like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a little like Yoda. You yeah, know? exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. But I've always wondered. I've never really. I. It depends. Yeah. I mean, they're really different styles, and so I can't say that. But within the traditions that I'm most familiar yeah, yeah. with, I think one of the things that really marks a person who's done a lot of practice is that they tend to be pretty relaxed. Mm -hmm. In whatever context it is, yeah. and they also tend to be really socially connected, huh. like they connect to people. Okay. In the particular traditions I've seen, huh. like they they don't may not be very dramatic, you know, they don't have to be out there and doesn't have to be a kind of very outward style of connection, but they seem to be very sensitive to what's happening to the people around them. Hmm. And the other thing is that they're just you know. They, it, and this is admittedly completely unscientific, but it's just like nice to be around people. Like really, that. Yeah, nice. they just, you know, they come in the room and everyone kind of, you can sort of, you just feel, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you yeah. feel like something changes. Just like when someone really upset or nasty comes mm -hmm. in a room. Mm -hmm. This can, is like the spectrum. Yeah, what we call emotional contagion. Okay. So uh, these great meditators seem to have something like that going on. His Holiness the Dalai Lama, for example, yeah. is really like you know when he enters the room. <laughs> really? Yeah, okay. he's really uh, that very much like that. I, I always wondered about that because I've never been in the same room as Dalai Lama, at least close by, and that um, I've always wondered if if it's because he's meditated a lot or because he was essentially he has the personal expectation that he needs to be this person which has made him into this like amazing person as well i think that's an high expectations of himself those aren't necessarily yeah. i mean there are kinds of meditations are all about cultivating that sense okay yeah it's really interesting there are tantric meditations but uh which he does a lot of i'm sure i know for a fact at least in terms of his public statements but um uh, I think that it's also it's a combination of things. It's a yeah. social context and so on. And he's just an extraordinary person. He might have been like that, no matter what. No matter what, mm -hmm. to some extent. But I do think that there is something about certain kinds of practices. You know, especially when you do a lot of compassion practices with um, with mindfulness practices, they say that that has a really it really changes the way people experience you actually. Mm. Interesting. Now, yeah. well, a bunch of questions about that, but may maybe for. Maybe for another time. Um, but I know it's been awesome. And uh, 
yeah, really appreciate your time. My pleasure, uh, my pleasure. This has been awesome. It's, it's the first time I've been to the new uh, Center for Healthy Minds, so it's it's a pretty amazing facility. So you guys be around to check it out if you have a public event or anything. Yes, so, and we do periodically. Yeah, yeah. Have, keep, keep an eye on our calendar. Yeah. Actually, we have a public event with Matthew Ricard himself, in fact, in October. Really? So really? Uh, check that out. Yeah, third week of October, I think. So Interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, and thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Flyover Labs. As always, I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, John.